Now, I'm sitting here next to you, and if you're going back inside, I'm following you inside, and if you're going home, I'm following you there too. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was, and I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. With all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. I thought you did. You are listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 125, The Banshees of Inishirin. This episode is actually part of two different series, one on literary theory and one on the troubles of Ireland. If you haven't already, listen to the other episodes of both series before continuing. We also recommend watching the 2022 movie, The Banshees of Inishirin. Okay, Race, getting to know your question for today. What is something that you have noticed improve in the world during your lifetime? So the reason I love this question is because it's very easy to do the opposite of this, right? And feel mm -hmm. like, you know, um, things are getting worse. As a matter of fact, my master's thesis is basically about that attitude in society. Like <laughs> the world is getting worse. And um, the title of my thesis is literally going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, okay. Um, and related to a novel that Cormac McCarthy wrote. Um, anyway, so I do like this question. And that's actually what my thesis argued was the opposite of that. And I think Cormac McCarthy's saying the same thing. Like, people get real been out of shape. And things are not great. But they've always been not great. Which, in a way, is kind mm. of like an optimistic <laughs> way of looking at the world. Like, yeah. it's all the same. It's, um, anyway, um, that's the, our, you know, required little Cormac McCarthy sidetrack <laughs> for the episode. Um but one answer, and maybe this is just my observation or, you know, maybe maybe other people wouldn't agree with this statement. But I seem to remember as a kid that littering was like kind of I, I remember seeing people throw stuff out of car windows. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure. Well, I mean, we know that still happens. If you look on the side of the road, you can see evidence of it. But I feel like that today is like you have to be some sort of sociopath to do yeah <laughs> um and maybe like i said maybe i just saw it once and my little brain was like littering is fine in 1997 <laughs> yeah. and and now i think that there's been some shift in the world but that feels like something that just would be a no like a no-go mm -hmm. um today yeah. we've kind of like matured i guess as a society not that it was ever okay but um I think that's my big answer. And then, of course, my other answer to this is um, the ability to make plans and to, like, 
meetup is great. I remember going to the mall with my family in, you know, the year 2000. And my dad would just be like, okay, we're meeting here outside of, uh, of this uh, Panda Express in two and a half hours. Uh, don't get kidnapped. And hopefully you know what time it is in two and a half hours. Ready, go. And like, if you didn't have your watch or something, you just have to like ask a stranger what time it was. Yeah. Um, and now, of course, with cell phones, that's so much easier to do. In some ways, I think our life is uh, not as enjoyable as it used to be without cell phones. But mm. that is definitely an unequivocal improvement <laughs> that we can be like, hey, I'm going to go over here and we know where each other are in real time. Um, that's a definite improvement. Oh, I love it. That uh, reminds me of when I was a kid, we would meet uh, my cousins who lived in North Carolina, five hours away. And because no one had cell phones, you had to literally schedule, we would uh, tell each other when we were going to leave and then meet two and a half hours in the middle at a particular highway exit. And it was like, (laughs) we're going to pull over on this exit. So you better be there. Yeah. I'll wait for you to get there until you get there. Which is like, it's so alien to think about now, right? Totally. And like, if somebody didn't show up, you'd be like, well, I guess we're going to wait half an hour or they got murdered. Like one of them. Yeah, two totally. <laughs> uh-huh. And we'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a great, um, those are really great examples. And uh, the littering one, I think is especially, yeah, I, I feel that as well. I think we are better about that now than we used to be. I think you could take this question and run with it in kind of broad strokes. Like we could maybe say um, civil rights are better in the United States than they used to be 30 years ago. It's easier to be a gay person now than it was 30 years ago, you know, with some exceptions and everything. But I think there are like, you know, broad political things that you could say. So I feel a little silly because my two answers for this question are very materialistic. But this question was born out of a real incident that happened a couple weeks ago when my siblings came to visit. And I was filling up an air mattress for them to sleep on. Mm -hmm. And I realized in doing so that air mattresses are way better now than they used to be in the 1990s. Amen. (laughs) You can, it's so great. The like outlet and the plug is all in the mattress and you turn it to inflate you turn it to deflate it all just kind of does it for you it's way faster than it used to be but i can't even tell you like when we would go visit my cousins when i was a little kid and it was a whole ordeal you'd either have to blow the mattress up like with your mouth (laughs) or you would like plug it into a pump that was just never like secured correctly and all air would always leak out and I don't think automatic deflating was ever a question. Yeah, I would like to shake the hand of the person who was like, what if we put the pump in the mattress? In the mattress. <laughs> it's so amazing. And I think they maintain their quality a lot longer than they used to. I, I feel like old air mattresses just never stayed inflated. That you're That is an, an excellent option. So I feel very grateful that we have that technology. Um, and then the second thing that I would also call out This one feels pretty recent. I want to say within the last five years, I think insulation technology for coolers and water bottles Mm. is much better than it used to be. Um, I don't know if you're a Yeti fan or a, uh, what's the the other one called? 
you can tell that I'm a Yeti fan. The other one is Hydroplask yeah. or Stanley or any of those, right? Yeah. Um, I think the first time I saw a Yeti was a couple years ago. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like they have a fancy, you know, it keeps it cold longer, whatever, you know. But I didn't believe it until my brother got a cooler made from Yeti and put ice in it. And he opened the cooler five days later and the ice was still pristine and frozen. Wow. And I just was, I was like, this is like a miracle. I can't believe this is even real. (laughs) Because again, 30 years ago, you know, like a cooler that you would take to the beach, it really wasn't doing anything. I don't think it was keeping anything cold. And now, now they've done it in a way that's, to me, looks like magic. Can you feel already like how we're going to be as 80 year old men where we're yeah. going to be like, gather around kids and I'll tell you about a time when coolers couldn't hold a, a, a bucket of ice for more than 20 minutes. Like, right. yeah. We're going to be so amazed by the coolers and they're going to be yeah. like, oh, grandpa. He gets so jazzed about the, how long the ice stays <laughs> the cooler. It's the tip of the iceberg. I could talk forever about all kinds of mundane things and they should be so lucky that we'll talk to them about Uh, thermal technology (laughs) all right so we have a very cool episode today i'm so excited to get into this one uh this episode is coming off the heels of our series about the troubles in ireland and northern ireland Um, And so the episode is very much a part of that series, but it's also part of the other series that we've been doing about literary theory, because in this episode today, we'll be talking about the movie The Banshees of Inishirin, which, in addition to being a movie that we can talk about from a critical lens, is also about Ireland and Northern Ireland and is very much related to the series that we've just finished. So super excited to dig in today. for the Banshees of Inishirin. And, you know, in preparation for this episode, we have both watched the movie, The Banshees of Inishirin, which came out in 2022 and was nominated for Oscar awards uh, up and down the categories. Um, and I would say here as a the precaution that we always give, if you are interested in watching the movie, The Banshees of Inishirin, then please press pause at this point in the episode, give it a watch, and then come back to the episode where we'll all talk about it. Uh, together. So, and, you know, at this point in these two different series, so we've talked about the history of Ireland and the nature of the divide between Ireland and Northern Ireland. And in the literary theory series, we've up until this point talked about feminist criticism, Marxist criticism, psychoanalytic criticism, and formalist criticism through the movies Tar, Rocky, Black Swan, and Spotlight. Today, we'll be talking about the Banshees of Inishirin, specifically in the lens of literary theory that is known as New Historicism, which is a kind of a fun, swanky name uh, for something that I think is a very interesting way to talk about literature and film. So first off, what is New Historicism? Wikipedia says New Historicism examines the work of literature through its historical context and seeks to understand cultural and intellectual history through literature. So taking a look at the context of the piece and the cultural and intellectual world around the piece um, as 
first of all, illuminating more about the text, but also using the text as a way of understanding the world around it. So kind of both directions there. Why is this called New Historicism with a capital N? Um, as far as I can understand, this keeps it separate from another branch, which is called historical criticism. You can go to the Wikipedia page called historical criticism. And that is specifically a branch of uh, criticism that is associated only with the study of ancient texts, looking at like the Bible and um, historical, you know, religious texts, etc. And so uh, my understanding is that new historicism is just keeping it separate from historical criticism, which is specifically kind of a separate thing. New historicism first developed in the 1980s, primarily through the work of the critic Stephen Greenblatt, who I know because he edited all the Norton anthologies that Grace and I used to study. When That's we where I remember his name from. <laughs> yeah, uh, very respected <laughs> liter literary historian and theorist. And it gained wide, wide influence in the 1990s is when the theory really took off. Greenblatt himself coined the term new historicism when he, quote, collected a bunch of essays and then out of a kind of desperation to get the introduction done, I wrote that the essays represented something called a new historicism. So kind of a tongue in cheek <laughs> way of talking about <laughs> the name that he tacked onto this, but I respect it. Call it whatever you want. Some of the common tenets of new historicism that have been laid out by other theorists, uh, in particular one here known as, or his name is Harold Aram Wieser. He said that these are some of the common tenets of the movement. And he gives five in particular. He says one, that every expressive act is embedded in a network of material practices. Two, that every act of unmasking, critique and opposition uses the tools it condemns and risks falling to prey to the practice it exposes. Three, that literary and non-literary, quote, texts circulate inseparably. Four, that no discourse imaginative or archival gives access to unchanging truths, nor expresses inalterable human nature. And five, that a critical method and a language adequate to describe culture under capitalism participate in the economy that they describe. Now, if those sound like five theories of nonsense to you, uh, please do not be alarmed. I think that is perfectly <laughs> understandable. We will do our best in uh, the rest of this episode to try and unpack what these theories are talking about and what specifically they're mentioning, because I recognize that it is a, quite of a heavy load there. <laughs> but I want to take a look at a particular example that we have actually done on this podcast in the past. We have used new historicism to talk about uh, this particular play. If you think back to episode 50 that we did, which was part of the series on the English Revolution, we talked about Macbeth. And in the episode, we use new historicism to criticize the play and make sense of it in a way that not every literary theory would do. If you're not familiar with our episode on Macbeth, or if you need a refresher of how Macbeth works, then here's a quick summary of the play. Macbeth is a general in the army of the King of Scotland, whose name is King Duncan. And Macbeth meets three witches, and they ominously prophesy to him that he will become the King of Scotland. 
They also tell him that his friend Banquo will not become the king of Scotland, but that he will beget kings in his lineage, in his descendants. And when Macbeth meets the witches and they tell him this, he's immediately shocked by the prophecy. He thought, I could never become king, I'm just a general. But in time and throughout the course of the play, he and his wife, Lady Macbeth, mull over the prophecy and become more and more ambitious. They eventually kill King Duncan, which leads Macbeth to take the throne of Scotland and then fulfill the witch's prophecy. And in order to protect his position as king, Macbeth begins a path of destruction, murder, and war, and he destroys all peace that may have existed during the time of King Duncan. That's Macbeth in a nutshell. It's a great play. I fully recommend reading it or watching it, etc. I think Macbeth is fantastic. But let's go ahead and historicize the play now according to some of the tenets that Har Harold Wieser listed above. So Harold Wieser, one of his tenets was, he said, every expressive act is embedded in a network of material practices. I want to bold those words, material practices. And here's, I think, one way that you can interpret that. Macbeth is not a book that was invented to give students something to read in class in the you know, 21st century. Macbeth was first a play. It was written by Shakespeare and first performed in 1606, 400 years ago. And plays do not do well unless they get an audience. If nobody had bought tickets to Macbeth, then we would not know about it today. So the fact that we know about Macbeth means that it succeeded, right? That mm -hmm. it was performed on stage, people bought tickets to it, they talked about it to each other, and then it entered the cultural consciousness as an important thing that people wanted to discuss. So Shakespeare, maybe when he was writing Macbeth, he might have had something in mind that he wanted to say, but as a writer, he was bound by these material practices because what he wrote had to sell tickets. If he didn't sell tickets, it wasn't going to go. And whatever he wrote also had to be stageable. So he couldn't just write anything. He had to write something that you could put on stage with actors who could say the lines and deliver it in a, in a convincing way. So that's, I think, tenant number one to consider. One of the other tenets that Wieser mentions, he says, no discourse imaginative or archival gives access to unchanging truths, nor expresses inalterable human nature. So let's bold the line there, access to unchanging truths. When we talked about Macbeth in school, when I read it in my English class, we read the play as a morality play about the danger of ambition. Lady Macbeth is the ambitious one in the couple initially, and she's really entranced by the prophecy of the witches, and she pushes Macbeth to commit murder so that they will both succeed and they'll become king and queen of Scotland. Now that sounds like inalterable human nature to me. <laughs> People are as ambitious now in 2023 as they were 400 years ago. But new historicism would argue that this is impossible to prove. This is only the reading that we're able to do in 2023. We can read Macbeth and say, oh, this is about ambition. But we can only do that because we exist in a world where ambition means something to us that we recognize in Macbeth. We're not able to read the play as someone did in 1606. 
it's kind of difficult to wrap your head around what it would have been like to read the play in a different time period. But that's the point here of new historicism is that you're not really able to do that. And then a third tenet that he mentions, he says, literary and non-literary texts circulate inseparably. So this is an interesting one, I think. Um, there's a literary text here, which is Macbeth, and there's also a non-literary text. Every person who was seeing Macbeth was seeing the literary text that Shakespeare had created, but they were also very aware of a non-literary text that was happening at the time, which was just the news. And the news in England in 1606 was saying something that was extremely relevant to the literary text of Macbeth. In 1603, three years before the performance of Macbeth, England's throne had been assumed by James I, who was a king from, if you can believe this, Scotland. <laughs> now that is inseparable from the play. No one who was buying a ticket to Macbeth in 1606 could go into the theater not thinking about the Scottish king, James I, who just took the throne of England for the first time in all of the English monarchs history. There was never a Scottish monarch until James I. But the way that we read this in 2023, I think is the opposite. I think most readers are not thinking about James I when right. they see Macbeth or when they read it, et cetera. This kind of bolsters the other point about unchanging truths. The way that people read the play is always changing. And this is because of the, quote, non-literary texts that are inseparable from our reading process. Everybody in the theater in 1606 was familiar with the news about James I. In a different way, all the readers in 2023, we've got our own non-literary texts that we're reading and that are influencing the way that we read Macbeth. So kind of interesting there um, as a way of, you know, seeing some new meaning in Macbeth. What are the benefits of new historicism? The other lenses that we've all talked about uh, at this point in the series have really been focused on internal elements of the work. You have the ideological criticisms that we went over, specifically the feminist criticism, Marxist and psychoanalytic all ideological in the way that they're kind of pushing an ideology that they have in mind, but they're looking at elements of the text to inform those ideologies. And then we also talked about formalist criticism, which is specifically associated with only looking what is in the text. We want to talk about what, um, what is in the text that makes it do what it does. New historicism is different from all four of these because it talks about not what is necessarily in the text, but what is around the text. It's the context that the work was created in, the way that the work was influenced by the world that it came up in, and the way that different time periods read different texts. I would say a key benefit of this is that new historicism finds a source of meaning that it almost seems like ignorant not to acknowledge. Because once you realize that Macbeth is about a Scottish king at the same time that England was getting a Scottish king, it's like, you can't tell me that people in 1606 were watching the same play that we do today. You know, right. it's like, you can't tell me Shakespeare didn't have that in mind. It's like, right. that is such a key element of what Macbeth is. 
And you, you have to know the context of the play in order to get that. Macbeth, the text of the play, is not going to talk about James I. Um, and then what do you think some flaws of new historicism are? I would say the, um, the difficulty with new historicism is that you can never really know how past readers saw a text. You can't really know everything about the past and the way that it would have influenced things. Every time that we try to contextualize uh, a play from the past, we have to do so with our current non-literary text, right? The way that, that we think now is different from the way people may have thought back then. Um, new, new historicism also, I think, can be somewhat reductive. If you're only looking at the context of the play, then what do you have to say about the text of the play? You know, If you were only to stick to new historicism, uh, then you probably wouldn't say anything about some of the aesthetic qualities of Macbeth. Mm. Also, there's kind of an idea that uh, in new historicism that literature is a product of its time and that social energy and like movements create literary texts. And I think uh, many have argued that this is very ignorant of genuine creative genius. If you want to say that Macbeth exists because James the first took the throne of England, then that says nothing of like the artistry that Shakespeare put into this play and all of the lines that he composed and the poetry that he put into it. You know, it's just reductive to say literature is only a product of its time. Hmm. But what do you think? Do you see any benefits or flaws here, things to be aware of as we use new historicism in our criticism? Well, I'm fascinated by this idea of... Um... Um, I'm trying to remember which of the um, tenants it was. No, um, no discourse imaginative or archival gives access to unchanging truths nor expresses inalterable human nature. Mm. Um, I don't know how I feel about that because um, I, I mean, I understand. Kind of rankle you? That kind of rankles yeah. me, right? Yeah, I, I, and I think that I think that makes sense for like mm -hmm. a, a literature person or a humanities person because. I think that's kind of baked into like the DNA in some ways. And it might, it still might be wrong, but like, no, there's like unchanged, you know, Shakespeare means is it, it, it resonates today because he's, he's saying things that are like, um, you know, unchanging truths and there are inalterable mm -hmm. aspects of human nature that mean that we're, you know, um, we're interested in it today, just like they were back then. So it does rankle a little bit. That one's, I'm going to have to think on that one. But mm -hmm. um, the point that you make is, is well taken that like, okay, so what you're, you're saying there's inalterable human nature. Can you tell me anything about the life mindset, worries, customs, society of somebody even 50 years ago, let, let alone, you know, 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, that's fair enough. But that's the one that's really standing out to me, um, because, like I said, in a way that sort of feels like central to what um, what art is trying to do is to try and be transcendent. And this is saying there's nothing yeah. transcendent here. Right. Yeah, that's very true. Um, that is I think that is a particularly like irritating point that it calls <laughs> out, because we think of literature as lasting because it illustrates human nature. Right. And that's why Macbeth is still read is because the story of ambition does seem kind of eternal, right? And something that people can relate to. One of my favorite criticisms I've ever heard about the play Macbeth, I don't remember the scholar that suggested this, 
was that he said Macbeth is a play about childlessness. Mm. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are married, but they don't have any children. Um, that's there's nothing to that in the text. That's all it it doesn't say anything. You just assume that they don't have any children, you know? Yeah. Um, and who knows, right? I don't know what to say about that because there's not anything in the text that really says anything. But I do wonder, do viewers of the play in 1606 look at Lady Macbeth and Macbeth and think if only they had children? And do viewers in 2023 do the same thing? Are we still thinking about childlessness in the same way? Or um, is it very unusual for Macbeth and Lady Macbeth not to have any children in either of the two centuries? I don't know, right? It's hmm. kind of like, who can say? <laughs> it's just yeah. like, I don't know. So we want to give a rundown on this movie for those um, who haven't seen it um, so that you can kind of understand the sort of the context of our conversation. But I will say what Tyler said again. If you're even a little bit thinking about seeing this movie, um, this is one where the spoilers, oh. would re it'd really be a shame. So um, go back. Really. Yeah, go back to have a long look in the mirror and decide, am I watching this movie? And if you think you might, then go, <laughs> go watch mm. it. Um, but this is a 2022 film. It's set on a fictitious island called Inishirin off the western coast of Ireland. Um, actual filming took place off the west coast of Ireland on two different islands that I would very much like to visit because this might be one mm. of the most beautifully staged <laughs> movies so I've ever seen. Mm. It's so, so, so cool. Um, and fun fact that we'll discuss as we kind of get further into the analysis of this um, Inishirin, um, so Innis means island. So if you look at like a map mm. of the um, of the islands off of Ireland, a lot of them um, have Innis in them. Um, okay. And Erin, as in Erin Gobra, Erin is um, a name for Ireland. So literally, Inishirin is the island of Ireland. Oh, okay. And that will become important perhaps later as we talk. Yes. But it's a fictitious island. Um, and um, this movie was written and directed by a man named Martin McDonough. He also made um, his two movies that I had heard of that are kind of bigger um, are In Bruges and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I haven't seen either of those, but yeah. um, I would like to, especially now after having seen this. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm pretty hooked on this guy. I would he, he wrote and directed this, um, which is an impressive feat. And so I would definitely check out either of those movies. Um, this movie st stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson in the two kind of main roles. And then um, the two other actors that get kind of billing are Carrie Condon and Barry Keehan. Um, Tyler, pop quiz, Barry Keehan has already been on the podcast in the movie, Dude. in a movie that we watched. What movie has he been in that we watched already? Oh, this is a great quiz. <laughs> Was he in The Favorite? No. He has that like period piece face. No, he's in the Green Knight, of course. That's right. Yeah, yes. incredible <laughs> in the Green Knight. Yeah, he is incredible in the Green Knight. The other movie that he's in that I think um, you might have recommended to me is The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Oh, I love him. In that. Um, yeah. And in, and in the constellation of those three movies, Killing of a Sacred Deer, The Green Knight, and this movie, I'm now a huge fan of his, and I'm excited to see <laughs> yes, like what else he does. He's 
He's a talented, talented kid. I think he's about our age. You could do worse than a Barry Keen marathon, I think. Oh, uh, great. For, movie, <laughs> for yeah. movie night. Definitely, definitely. Um, so, yeah, this is a 2022 film. It's called a Black Tragicomedy, tragic comedy, mm. um, which is interesting. But I will say that when I wasn't laughing at this movie, I was crying. So there mm. you go. <laughs> That's an appropriate um, name, a tragic comedy. And, a, and the comedy is a, a black comedy. Um, this was a critical and box office success. It did pretty well, and it ended up on many best of the year lists at the end of um, of 2022 um, by you know fancy critics and whatnot. It was also nominated for best picture. It snagged some other nominations for best director, screenplay, and um, others, um, including the best score, which I fully endorse. The score, mm-hmm. the music in this movie is um, is really effective and, and moving. Also, those four actors I mentioned earlier. Um, Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Kerry Condon, and Barry Keehan, um, all were nominated for acting Oscars in their respective um, categories. So in as much as you trust the Oscars, that's a pretty ringing endorsement for this movie. And if you don't trust the Oscars, trust the race and Tyler's because it's a good movie. <laughs> um, and I'll give a fairly quick overview of, of the plot. Um, and I will also say from the beginning, I think this movie might be unlike anything I've ever seen in the sense that this is just a completely, it feels like a completely original creation. Like it's not, I don't know. It's, it's sort of hard to explain. Um, but it's, it's just a very, very unique, um, thing to sit through. And so, um, as we dive in, bear that in mind, but the film begins with, um, a man named Parik and he's a simple, but lovable village resident on this little Island of Inishirin. He lives with his sister and his adorable donkey. Mm. Um, His donkey sleeps in the house uh, um, at times. And his sister seems weary of life on the island. And she hints that she might want to move um, to the mainland and be a librarian. One day, Park is surprised to arrive at the pub for his daily drinking appointment. Seems like it might be the only pub on the island. Um, (laughs) Only to find that his best friend, Calm, um, who has joined Park for a drink every day for years hasn't arrived. So Parag investigates, expecting to find his friend sick or sleeping or having lost track of time. But he finds out that Colm is intentionally ignoring him. Colm eventually tells Parag that he doesn't want to be his friend anymore and would rather focus on composing his music. He's a, a fiddler and creating a legacy that will be remembered after his death. And he laments how boring Parik is to be around. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I'll just, let's pause. That's kind of a hilarious conflict, it's right? hilarious. Yeah. Two grown men looking at each other saying, I don't want to be your friend anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm focusing on my music. Yeah. I don't, I don't like you um, anymore. That's just, it's, it's, it's simultaneously heartbreaking. Yeah. And like what am i on am i at kindergarten like i don't want to be your friend anymore what are you talking about Mm -hmm. um colm says that park is too dull for him he wants nothing to do with him ever again um park is shocked by this abrupt end to a years-long friendship of course and he refuses to accept what he's being told and he tries in various ways to reignite the friendship to make amends to figure out what what you know what have i done wrong to to scare my friend colm away when it becomes clear that Parg isn't inclined to honor Calm's wishes to be left alone, Calm gives Parg an ultimatum. And the ultimatum is this. For every conversation that you initiate with me from now on, 
I'm going to cut off one of my fingers. <laughs> wow. So again, what? Like that, this is just so out of, I guess maybe it slightly resembles like something out of like Greek mythology or something. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what a, what a unique setup that we've got. Well, Park gets drunk and confronts a local cop in the pub for abusing his son, Dominic, who's a friend of Park's. He then yells at Colm as well. Um, Park later apologizes, says, I'm sorry for yelling at you in the pub. <clears throat> and Colm responds to this conversation that Park um, initiated with him by cutting off his left index finger and throwing it at Park's front door. Um, Park tries to sabotage Colm's music career, <clears throat> which he sees as dry, you know, potentially the cause of this um, this wedge between them, thinking it'll bring them together again, or that Colm will be impressed by par- by his commitment to reconciliation. Maybe this will make me interesting to him. He thinks. Um, well, he isn't interested in that. And when Parg talks to Colm again, um, trying to you know um, reason with him, it results in Colm cutting off all four remaining digits on his mm-hmm. left hand and throwing them at Calm's door or at Parag's door. Sorry. Um, Parag's sister Siobhan um, during this time leaves the Island and that leaves Park friendless because he's lost Calm and without his family. Um, worst of all, he returns to his home after the finger throwing incident to find that his beloved donkey, Jenny tried to eat one of Calm's fingers and choked to death. And I will say that I gasped out loud when I saw mm. that dead donkey. And it was, I mean, this sounds so silly that like a donkey swallows a severed finger. It sounds, mm. um, and it is kind of humorous on one level, but. Um, uh, That's um, so sad a, too. A major blow. Yeah. Um, so Parg is now without friends, without family, without his donkey, um, seemingly a man with nothing to lose. He takes revenge by telling Calm, I'm going to burn your house down tomorrow at two o'clock, whether you're inside or not. Um, which he does. The next day, the two meet by the ashes of the home. And while Calm seems interested in a truce um, at this point, Parg says nothing will change until one of them dies. They wonder if the civil war that's been raging on the island um, that they can occasionally overhear throughout the movie, um, they wonder out loud in this scene, maybe the civil war is over on the mainland because they haven't heard gunfire in a while. And Parg replies that it will begin again because, quote, some things there's no moving on from, and I think that's a good thing. And that's essentially where the movie ends. Um, I'm really excited to dive into the meat of all of that. There's a bunch of good stuff there. Um, but just as um, kind of a final note on there is on the tie into the trouble. So you heard me mention there at the end that the movie all throughout is kind of making reference to and um, and occurring in the foreground of um, 1920s. Ireland, which includes the Irish Civil War. Um, If you remember from our previous episode, we discussed this period in some pretty good detail. Um, If you remember home rule, the idea that Ireland should kind of be its own thing and get to make its own decisions, passed in 1914. And everyone, um, well, not everyone, a lot of people were excited, um, but it did cause some great tensions. However, World War I interrupted that, and that was never put into um, practice. After the war, however, the tensions flared again. Britain had a whole population of combat veterans now in their um, standing army, and they were deployed to Ireland, which did not help 
matters at all. Tyler, this is the period also that you told us about when the British military locked down a Gaelic football game. If um, listeners mm-hmm. remember this kind of dramatic detail, they entered the stadium and ended up shooting a bunch of civilians. Um, eventually, all of this was ended in gigantic um, Irish scare quotes, <laughs> ended with the Anglo-Irish Treaty and the partition of Ireland in 1920. Okay, you're the North, we're the South. Um, this island now has two countries on it. Deal with it. Uh, two nations, same island. But people didn't like that either. So the fighting continued basically over the terms of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Um, this was called the Irish Civil War. Um, This is where entering onto the stage, we get the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, those from the South who wanted all of Ireland to be one thing and rejected any sort of claim that there was a second nation existing up in the North. Um, And then we also get the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulatory, um, the people in the North who said, look, we're our own thing. We voted on this line that divides Ireland in half. So you, you know, Irish rabble rousers stay to the South. These are the seeds of the troubles. Um, you know, the 19, the film is, um, according to Wikipedia, set very broadly in the 1920s. So we don't know exactly, but um, we are seeing at that moment the seeds being planted for the troubles, um, which we've discussed, you know, kind of generally throughout these few episodes that raged from, you know, the 60s to the 90s. Um, that's the background of what's, I mean, actually literally going on in the background of this movie. There are scenes where, Characters are standing there or, or walking, you know, down the path and they hear cannon fire and gunshots coming from the island across the channel. Um, so that's our that's our context. And now we're perfectly keyed up or um, teed up. Right. Because we've got a work of art and we've got the a historical context that it's referencing. And we know the historical context that it was made in, which is 2022, um, you know, modern Western culture. And so that um, in a fairly large uh, nutshell is the Banshees of Inisherin. All right. So now that we know about the Banshees of Inisherin, um, I should uh, tell you a quick story about me watching this movie. It's very easy. It's very short. Uh, I saw this movie last fall back when I didn't know anything about the Irish Civil War. And then the second time I watched the movie was a couple days ago after we've done this whole series about the troubles. So for me personally, watching this movie before and after knowing about the Irish civil war was a night and day experience. I, mm-hmm. I felt like I watched two different films. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine <laughs> once you know about the troubles and the Irish civil war, uh, this film has, I think, a lot going on that's very heavily involved that if you don't know anything about the context of the movie, it kind of means something else. But what do you think, Race? Can we historicize the Banshees of Inishirin? How do you think we would do that? Well, yeah, so this is sort of a tricky thing because this is a period piece. So this is intentionally like evoking a yeah. different time, a time when none of us were alive, a time that mm-hmm. nobody really at this point essentially remembers, you know, 1920, there's not a lot of people who have clear memories of that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's an interesting wrinkle to this because um, we, you know, what I, if, if I'm correct about my understanding of um, historicism is that um, we need to focus on the period in which it was created Mm -hmm. and we need to, you know, historicize, um, be, be 
cognizant of the context in which it was created, which for us is what, 2020? <laughs> yeah. And Martin McDonough, by the way, is Irish, right? Mm-hmm. I think he's from Dublin, not Northern Ireland. So okay. uh, the Republic of Ireland. And uh, taking that into consideration as well, he is someone who would have lived through the Troubles. Definitely, so yeah. he did not live through the Irish Civil War, but he definitely uh, was exposed to the, quote, non-literary text of the Irish Civil War, mm-hmm. obviously having lived through the Troubles in all of the 20th century that preceded it. Yeah, and he's, I think, in his 50s, 50-ish, and so his parents certainly would have remembered mm. him. Yeah, uh, okay. the, you know, this this period. So that's kind of an interesting thing to uh, that was probably the household that um, that he was raised in. Yeah. But yeah, so that's interesting because we're we're trying to think about the historical context in which this, in which this was created. But yet it's also inviting us to reflect on a different time, which I think um, is a fraught concept for new historicism. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we're being invited to reflect on this time that we, in a certain sense, have zero access to. We can understand it on paper and um, in history books, and you can listen to podcasts about the partition of Ireland, but we don't really have access to that. So that's interesting. Um, But we can say, I think, um, well, definitely, I can say what a person in 2020 might have thought about this. Um, And we can take this and go however you want to go. Um, But two big things that I was thinking about when I saw this that are um, in the kind of cultural stew right now, for sure, um, that somebody in a hundred years trying to analyze the Banshees of Inishir and would, um, you know, hopefully want to understand. Um, and I'll be interested, Tyler, if these were two things that you um, kind of picked up on or would have listed as, as um, kind of in the air. But the first one is the coronavirus pandemic. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, that, is interesting. I haven't really fleshed my thoughts out on that one, but um, that one's kind of fun. That's certainly when this was being um, made and promoted. And then the other was um, the kind of cultural concept right now of um, kind of reevaluations or questions about masculinity, both like the concept of toxic masculinity. That's something that, you know, you are going to hear today and think about today. Um, But also the like kind of social, um, like that sci- social science is observing about um, the decline in male um, friendship. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, I was, I, I saw this somewhere and I was like, oh yeah, great point. There's, there are people who are um, studying and, and I, frankly worried about the fact that men today, as opposed to men 50 years ago, would say that they have fewer, closer friends. And more often today, a man is likely to say that his, you know, support system or confidant is um, a significant other which is different 50 years ago when it would have been i've got my friends from work or from the you know the elks club or whatever Mm -hmm. um it also reminds me of a great snl skit which you if you haven't seen you should look up and it's um it's basically the idea is it's a dog park for um husbands oh (laughs) and all all these women are (laughs) taking their husbands there and they're like he's a little shy and they're like pushing him into this circle of other men and they're they slowly figure out that they can talk about marvel and um you know Mm. post malone stuff um anyway those were things that i was thinking you know as a person receiving this art those things stood out to me um but yeah i don't know what you think or wow i I love that. I didn't even consider either of those elements. Honestly, I I wasn't (laughs) even thinking about that. 
So I'll tell you my reaction watching it the second time, now that we've just, we're off the heels of talking about all this Irish history, right? I'm looking at the movie and the like conceit of the movie is so wild, which is Brendan Gleeson doesn't want to be friends with Colin Farrell anymore, right? Um, and Colin Farrell is just like, I, I can't figure out why he doesn't want to be friends with me anymore. I can't figure this out. And that's exactly what I was saying about Ireland and Northern Ireland before we started this series. I'm like, why do they fight? Like, what is all this troubles <laughs> about? Why, why is there so much conflict? Essentially, I'm seeing in both cases a conflict that is just, it makes almost no sense to an outsider. It's like, you just decided that you wanted to start fighting? Why? If you were best friends, you know? And then all of a sudden... Brennan Gleason says, ah, no way. <laughs> You're dull. <laughs> totally. I, I think that that's a fair um, reading that's bolstered by something from the text that this island is literally called the island of Ireland. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's a really key piece. Yeah. And did you notice there's a part when, uh, and it's so beautiful, by the way, because there's no electric lighting. I think on the island, it's all uh, incandescent. Or yeah. no, that's not what that's called. What is it called? Non-electric lighting. Yeah, like candles and whatnot. Yeah, uh, and he looks out and he sees cannons at night from the mainland. And uh, this is Powderick, and he says, good luck to you, whatever it is you're fighting about. Yeah. Which is such a poetic thing for him to say, because he has no idea what's even happening over there or why any of them are fighting, uh, which is exactly what he's going through. He doesn't know why he's fighting with Brendan Gleeson either. Definitely. There's also a scene, I think it might be the bartender or maybe the kind of village cop, but one of them says something like, what do you think about this, all this civil war business going on on the mainland? And he goes, I liked it back when it was just us fighting the British. Now we're, now we yeah. have to be fighting ourselves, you know, yeah, huh? <laughs> made so much more sense when we just hated the British and got on with it. Now we're, you know, squabbling amongst ourselves. And isn't that exactly Column and Powder because they were best friends and yeah. then for some reason now they're fighting against each other. Totally. I think another thing that is really striking about the film is that it it's not just that one person is acting crazy. They're both acting crazy. Colum starts it. He says, I don't want to be friends with Powderick anymore because he's boring and I want to focus on my music. And anytime he talks to me, I'm going to cut off one of my fingers. That's crazy. Yeah. But Powderick is also being crazy. He won't stop talking right. to Colum and he won't give up, even yeah. though it's clear Colum doesn't want to talk to him anymore and he's going to cut off his fingers. Powerick almost seems like idiotic. I think, uh, does he kind of come off as a simpleton to you or like uh, maybe ignorant in some way? It seems yeah. like he's being intentionally foolish. Definitely, yeah. So I, you'd be forgiven for maybe thinking he's bluffing on the first finger. But after yes. he's cut off one finger, it's like, dude, Stop. you need to trust this guy that he's <laughs> yeah. not messing around, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I do think that. I, as a matter of fact, I think that happens in the film because he says, um, he says, you're dull. Like, I don't want to be with you anymore. You're yeah. dull. And, and later, Parg is like commiserating with his sister. And he's like, he just thinks I'm I'm dull and I'm stupid. And he's, and she says, you're not stupid. You're nice. Yeah. And there's a whole, there's a lot of conversation about nice. Like, yeah. um, his big... Um, his big like drunken rant against um column the after he tells him i don't want to be your friend anymore he's like 
do you know what? This is not very nice, sir. Which again, feels like we're in kindergarten. Like he's not being very nice to me. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, there's kind of an innocence, like almost a, um, yeah, like he's kind of a bumpkin or something. Like he's, yeah. he's, not, he's not very worldly in the way that um, Calm kind of either is or wants to be. Cause he says, I've got to just create my art and I want to, you know, create something that's going to last forever. Um, that seems far from, um, Parikh's mind. He's like, but I thought we were going to go drink at the pub. You know, he's yeah. way more concerned with just the here and now. And, um, yeah, kind of a, a more simple, simple man. That, uh, kind of relentlessness of both of them, neither one is willing to yield. I also really do see a close metaphor with Ireland and Northern Ireland sure. and the RUC. It's like the fighting kept the fighting going because right. the worst thing that you could do would be like, to stop you know it's like yeah. well if you stop you're giving up so whoever fights next someone's gonna fight back yeah and, and... We, we discussed this in the operation banner episode but every account you read any wikipedia article or whatever that you pull up that's discussing the troubles the way they describe it as they say it proceeded as a tit for tat conflict yes uh -huh. you did this to me so i'm gonna do this to you well you do this to me i'm gonna do this to you and that's very much you know what's going on here um it's kind of a you know, sl slow but steady escalations. You do something, I do something. Okay, I'm going to cut off my finger. Well, I'm going to confront you about cutting off your finger, you idiot. Well, I'm yeah. going to cut off all my fingers. Well, I'm going to burn your house. You know, like, it proceeds that way, too. And if you're looking for a villain, I think you're hard-pressed to find it in both stories. Uh, if you're trying to find the villain of the partition of Ireland, there's bad stuff happening on all sides. You know, it's like yeah. violence is committed against civilians by both parties, like you said, tit for tat, and the details are very weedy and mundane. You know, it's like little things make a big difference. Yeah. Um, Column has a really fascinating um, decision to make, which is he gives up his friendship with Powderk because he wants to focus on his music. But at the same time, he says, if Powderk talks to me again, I'm going to cut off one of my fingers. He right. says this as a violin player. Yeah. <laughs> where you essentially need your fingers yep. in order to be a musician. So there's like a, it's almost absurdist, right? Like a willingness Definitely. to self-mutilate that Colm has that is not tied to the cause that he said. What he said is a lie that he wants to pursue his music. Because I'll tell you what, when you cut off your fingers, yeah, it's not pursuing your music. <laughs> yeah, that's like irony in its highest form, a, a violin player chopping off his fingers so yeah. they don't have time to play the violin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's there's also, yeah, because that, that's a great question to ask is like, why is, it, do we trust what he's saying? Is that really why he wants to do this? And if not, then what gives? And there yeah. is a point where um, when... Um, Parg gets drunk and confronts the local cop for being for you know um, abusing his his son who's friends with um, Parg. He's like, I can't believe you do that. That's terrible. And he's like really laying into him. And um, and Calm leans over to somebody and says, you know, this might be the most interesting I've ever seen him. <laughs> yeah. And he's like re re. Um, you know, assessing intrigued. And so it's like, yeah. like, really, what's going on? Is this really about him being boring? And so, um, yeah, the cutting off of the fingers 
is poetic irony kind of to the nth degree um mm-hmm. although by the end of the movie when they're standing at the burned out house he says um i think i finished my my masterpiece or whatever that he oh. names the name of the piece is the banshees of inisherin yeah um so yeah i don't know it's that's an it is an interesting motivation and i i agree with you that he seems to be lying about it just bizarre you want him i think so bad to be the villain um at least that's how i felt when i first watched it i thought that he was the villain and powerick was the good guy but at the same time if he doesn't want to talk to powerick anymore then <laughs> is that villainous you right. know? like if you if the first scene of the movie was all we got then i don't think that we would think of him as a villain it's the conflict between the two the way that it escalates that all of a sudden they both become villains. Yeah. And like I've, like I've said before, it is kind of a, a such a strange mix of petty and like it's pathos and bathos at the same time. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. Like, I don't want to be your friend. That really is a, that's a heavy, weird line to sit with. Like, are we in kindergarten or is this yeah. the tragedy of a lifetime? And the answer is both. Like you said, oh, like, this yeah. is both. Yeah, he's a grown man. Shouldn't he be able to put up with this boring guy that he sees? Like, right. grow up, you know, just deal yeah. with it. But at the same time, it's like, you know, it's kind of relatable. I think like one of the haunting elements of this movie, when I watched it the first time, back before I knew the context of Ireland, uh, I walked out of the Banshees of Inisherin thinking, if I had to sort myself into the box of I'm Colum or I'm Powerick, then I feel more like Colum. Mm-hmm. I love art and I want to be left alone and I don't like boring people. <laughs> <laughs> Those are all qualities that I have, but I don't support his actions in the movie at all. And I think that's a really mystifying thing to see kind of yourself painted on screen. Brendan Gleeson, I relate to that character. And then everything he does, I'm like, I hate this guy. <laughs> He's so <laughs> wrong, you know? And I, I just found that very uncanny. Hmm. What would, um, what could we say about this movie maybe from another lens are there any of the other lenses that we've discussed feminist marxist psychoanalytic or formalist that could illuminate the movie oh great question well um i do think that when a piece of art can like when you can have a a deep dive on any of those you're like oh yeah there's definitely a an x and a, a y z angle on this and I think this is kind of that way. Like, I think we could really go some places with this. Um, I find the feminism one interesting because there's essentially one. Well, there are two female characters. I was thinking three. Are there more than, are there there's just the, two? There's the third. So there's the so sister. Who were you going to say? Yeah. The sister and the witch. And I thought the third is the woman who wants the gossip. What does she work oh. at? The male? Is she like a male carrier? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And when she, there is a scene when she talks to another woman and it's the sister talking to her. That's right. And she's you're mad because she doesn't have very good gossip. Yeah, you're correct. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I do but like it's, the, it's a small sample, right? Totally. Yeah. And and the sister, who I would say is um, kind of a, a tentpole character. Yes. And she, uh-huh. um, I think there's a lot going on there. But she... Um, 
she makes the decision, I think, essentially that Calm makes as well, which is I'm going to say a painful goodbye in order to live a more fulfilling life. Right. Like she mm-hmm. leaves her brother yeah. and her home and that, you know, is portrayed in the movie and is, you know, just obviously not an easy choice. But she does it because she's, you know, a little bored, unsatisfied with yeah. life that she's at. Um, but, you know, is, is is she doing it in a more humane way to put it for lack of a better word yeah um, I, don't, I don't know about that but she's certainly um self-possessed enough to go get what she wants so in that sense she's uh like an admirable female character with um you know self um she's autonomous and whatnot um but yeah i don't know what are your thoughts on on other lenses yeah um maybe going along those lines uh Oftentimes in feminist criticism, you talk about the ways that women are reduced to archetypes, like Madonna versus whore complex, mm-hmm. etc. Um, maybe Siobhan sees the only other two women on the island as kind of the only two options that are left to her, right? She's like, of course, yeah. either I grow up and I become a gossipy mail carrier, or I grow up and become a creepy witch. Like an isolated <laughs> crime. You know? Yeah, and I can see how she would be very um maybe averse to those possibilities. She's like hoping for something better by escaping the island. Definitely. Um very interesting. What do you think about the witch in general? What's happening with that character? Yeah, so I didn't give a great overview of that just because I had to make my summary somewhat shorter than the film itself. But yeah, there's an older woman in the movie. Um, she's kind of, I don't know if she's ever called a witch, but her appearance. I don't think she is. I think I'm no. interjecting that. <laughs> no, <laughs> because but I, in I, my I, head, I'm like, she's a witch. <laughs> I would 100% agree with that. She's old. She 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 actually like kind of gives prophecy. Prophecy, like yeah. Yeah, and she um she has that sort of appearance. She's also lurking in the background of several important shots and kind of a sinister or you know um um I don't know unsettling way. Um, and she, as a matter of fact, she says when the, when the feud between them kind of begins, she says, uh, "Death is coming to Inisherin." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, presumably referencing um the donkey <laughs> who's oh, the only yeah. character that i know of who dies um well but... and um barry keen's character oh, and barry. oh of course of course of course and i think does she say that there's two deaths she she might say that there are two deaths coming oh maybe so and so you kind of wonder like is it column and powder but it's not it's... <laughs> I think it's the donkey and Dominic. I can't remember. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think she's so fascinating. I think uh, she adds like a mystical element to the story that I just find fun generally. Like if you're telling me, oh, here's a movie about two boys fighting, but there's a creepy witch involved. I'm already like, okay, I'm super interested in the witch. Totally. <laughs> Uh, that I, I just think that adds good color, you know, it's already kind of absurdist. And then to add this mystical element is creepy and interesting. I, I just yeah. thought it was interesting. Definitely. Um, we have in this episode discussed essentially two works of art that are both period pieces. The Banshees of Inishirin is a period piece. Macbeth is also a period piece. It's about an ancient king from Scotland 
that was not existing in 1606. Um, do you think that period pieces naturally lend themselves to historicizing? And maybe another question I would have is, why do, um, why do writers use period pieces? Oh, great question. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting to think about how often they, um, it, that's, a, that's a total genre of movie that is not, you know, suffering. Mm-hmm. Right now. Yeah, we, we love to make those right from, I mean, I could list a bunch of them that just off the top of my head, but like your Titanics and your whatever we like to yeah. look at older stories. Um, hmm, why do we why do we make those? I, I, I do think there's something. Um, first of all, there's the element of the exotic in the sense that like, this is a time gone by um, the, the clothing and the speech and everything is going to be um, different. And so it's it's visually interesting for us. But I also wonder if maybe there's an element of this is over, this has happened. The yeah. um, and you know this fits into a historicism um, lens maybe or it's it's a kind of good fodder because it's like okay if I'm watching Pride and Prejudice right and it seems like every five years or so we get a Pride and Prejudice adaptation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm watching Kira Knightley and Pride and Prejudice, um, I think maybe one of the comforts of that is the concept that okay the society that they're in she has to get you know uh, an annual dowry or whatever she's got she you know her family's out of money she has to marry somebody in order to not you know become destitute this is like a whole set of social um problems that really existed and was very important and stressful for like a woman of that time and there's i don't know if the words if the superiority is the right sense but like we don't deal with that problem anymore so this is like a safe way for me to experience social yeah. peril or yeah. peril of any kind knowing that like yeah but i don't have to deal with this and so you know this class division or whatever that we're looking at is a this is sort of a safe way to experience it so um period pieces in that sense um let us feel maybe some control over society and culture and like the the powers that be in a way that we can't today right like i don't know what's going to happen in six months, I don't know what the job market or the housing market or my you yeah. know, particular social you know pressures are going to do. But I do know, you know, or I can at least understand, comprehend and therefore feel a little bit of power over understanding, you know, the the social and class dynamics and pride and prejudice and knowing that this isn't a problem that I have. And so I kind of get some relief by, you know, some some secondhand relief by experiencing the problems and the ills of another time um i don't know maybe that's totally crazy but that's the first thing that came to mind oh i think that's totally true i think there's like a like you said kind of a safety net in Mm -hmm. looking at the problems of the past and thinking thank goodness i don't have to be on the titanic now (laughs) um i wonder though um i mean we have to wonder what it would have been like to show an Irish person, the Banshees of Inishirin in the 1920s, you know, would they have been too horrified by it? Would it hit too close to home or would they have found it very relevant or would they have said that none of this is accurate? You know, who knows what they would have said. But I do also, I feel like we kind of have to assume that a writer who writes a period piece is almost expecting you to historicize it and to use this form of literary theory, right? Shakespeare is kind of begging you to to look at the story of Macbeth and be thinking about James the First, King of 
king of England. Sure. From Scotland. He's like demanding that of his viewers at the time. And Martin McDonough is demanding us to think about the troubles that were going to follow this movie, right? And right. any Irish or Northern Irish person watching this movie is obviously going to be thinking about everything that the 20th century covered. Um, I think that's really interesting as a way of the artist kind of directing the criticism that uh, you're engaging in. And maybe that's something about histo new historicism in general is I just think it's almost a very natural way of thinking about art. You bring the context in that's around it because that's what people do when they watch movies and read books. No footnotes today. If you'd like to follow the show, you can check us out at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia on Instagram. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>